let's go ahead and grab our seats and I want to welcome you to church today uh, in Mesa, South Mountain, Ahwatukee, we have our campus there, Fountain Hills, uh, we have people gathering around the city right now and then online, some people are out of town with family celebrating the holiday here and they're joining us online, we're glad that we can come together that way with technology and we've been studying Gideon and Judges 6 and 7 and focusing on the message that the angel of the Lord first gave to Gideon, fear not. Fear not. And today I want to talk about this, that the battle is the Lord's. Amen? Don't you know the battle is the Lord's? There's going to be a lot of different things we cover in this message. We're going to go through Judges 6, verse 33, into chapter 7. And it says this, Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. This is also where many people think the, va- the battle of Armageddon will also take place when Jesus returns. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. So there are a lot of enemy forces coming against Gideon and the people of Israel here. And earlier in chapter, uh, we read that there's too many to count. It reemphasizes that later in this chapter. There's too many people to count here. There's a huge, vast army. Some estimates are hundreds of thousands of the enemy are coming against God's people. They had better weapons. They had superior numbers. And it looked really bad for the people of Israel. Can we just acknowledge that? It looked really bad. Have you ever been in a situation where it looks really bad? But what this story is going to teach us is that even when you're outnumbered, even when the enemy has superior forces coming against you, when you don't have a lot of money in your bank account, when you don't have the strongest muscles or or the most knowledge, you still have hope. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is with you. Just like the Holy Spirit was with Gideon, the, the Holy Spirit of God came upon Gideon. And that is the Old Testament language to describe that he was, in this moment, filled with the Holy Spirit. The enemy forces were vastly superior, but Gideon had something they didn't have. He had the Holy Spirit. And he blew this trumpet, and it caused all the people around to gather to Gideon, a vast army, about 32,000 people came to gather with Gideon against this invading force, and We read in other parts of the Bible about how the Holy Spirit would come upon God's people, a special people for a special time, and it happens with King Saul and with David and the elders of Israel and the prophet Ezekiel and Samson. They all have this moment where the Holy Spirit comes upon them and God uses them for a special purpose, but really that, that only happened for select individual in Old Testament times. What's so incredible is that After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in every single believer. That did not happen in Old Testament times. Not everybody had the Spirit of the Lord resting upon them like Gideon experienced in this moment. But you have the Spirit of the Lord in you today. And that means that with God's Spirit, anything is possible. The armies and allies that came to Gideon's aid didn't come because... 
He was an amazing trumpet player when he blew that trumpet. And everybody was like, oh, I got to hear more. It wasn't because Gideon had this great resume. They wanted to follow him into battle like William Wallace. No, it was because the Holy Spirit of God drew these people for an intended purpose. Some Christians are unfamiliar with the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, even some of you grew up in a church that didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. You treated him like the crazy uncle that came to your Thanksgiving gathering. Like, you know he's part of the family, but he's kind of weird, so you just avoid him, don't talk to him. That's how a lot of Christians talk about the Holy Spirit, because they've seen people do weird things and blame it on the Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit is not weird. People are weird. The Holy Spirit is awesome. He's not an impersonable uh, force, like... In Star Wars, he's an actual person, he's God, he's your helper, and he gives you the power and gifts you need to be used for God's glory. Gifts like prophecy and teaching and knowledge and generosity and tongues and word and wisdom. Like the Holy Spirit can give you everything you need to be used for God's glory. So as Christians today, we shouldn't be praying, you know, God, make me great. We should be praying, Lord, give me a greater portion of your Holy Spirit and give me greater sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Amen? Because a lot of times what we need is more sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Like even if you only have a mustard seed worth of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And you've got everything you need to be used by God. But honestly, sometimes we just, we tune him out. And we don't listen when he is guiding us. So we need to submit our lives to the Holy Spirit's leading and trust him that he can use us and do great things through us. In verse 36, Gideon said to God, now remember, 32,000 guys just came to join him from the surrounding villages. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew early only on the fleece and all the ground is dry around it, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. It's like he knows he's pushing it, you know? Like when your kids know they're pushing the limit. Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. All right, so here's Gideon. Remember the angel of the Lord showed up and said, do not be afraid. Confirmed it was God who sent him as a messenger by consuming Gideon's sacrifice with fire. God was with Gideon when he chopped down the idols to Baal and Ashtoreth and delivered him from the townspeople coming out wanting to kill him. Now, God comes upon Gideon, his spirit, as he blows this trumpet. 30,000 people come to join him, and he's still struggling with doubt. So, if, okay, just let me, let me ask for a sign. Let's, I'm going to put this wool fleece out. Have you ever heard any Christian or older you know, believer say, I'm putting out a fleece? to discern the, the Lord's will. They're referencing this passage. They're, they're looking for a sign. Let me put out a fleece, Lord, and, and if it's really you, I'm gonna wake up in the morning, the fleece will be soaked and the ground around it will be dry. It happens, you read, and, and then he's like, well, let's just make sure, let's confirm 
switcheroo. The next morning, Lord, can you make the fleece dry, the ground wet? It happens. Gideon is looking for confirmation of God's will. One thing it does teach us is that God is patient with his people. God's patient with his people. When we're trying to figure out his will and you truly want to discern his will, you're, you're not just delaying or procrastinating because you don't want to obey, but you just genuinely want to know, God, what is it you want from me? He's patient with us when we're seeking confirmation. I think he tolerates that because he's merciful and he's gracious to us. And then I'm reminded, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't judge Gideon too harshly for wanting a sign. God was asking him to do something that was pretty crazy by human standards. How many of you, after seven years of oppression, would want to go fight a superior force that outnumbers you 10 to 1? I mean, that's not something that most people are exactly like jumping at the chance to do. And so here he is saying, okay, God, if you're really going to use me to deliver the people, give me a sign. And then he asks for a, a reversal to confirm that it wasn't a coincidence so there are going to be times when you're in your life when you're trying to discern God's will for your life. And like some Christians, you might think, I'm going to put out a fleece, and I'm going to ask God to confirm or give me a sign. So I want to give you a few words of caution and some advice about that. First, if you're going to ask God for a sign, make sure that you ask for something supernatural like Gideon did. Don't just look for a coincidence that confirms what you already wanted to do. Christians can get a little silly about this sometimes, and I would say a little superstitious, like, okay, well, today, if my phone rings at 3.01, then I'll know it was God, who is three in one. But then, like, what if it rings at 3.03? You're like, well, maybe there was some interference, and it's still God, right? I mean, you don't know. Or you'll get someone sometimes who they just look for a sign and things that happen around them. You know, I was like, oh, I was thinking about quitting my job. And I was like, should I? I do have bills to pay. But then a dove flew right over my head. Okay, actually, it was a pigeon, but it looked like a dove in the moment. And I just felt like that was the Holy Spirit telling me, like, it's going to be okay. I'm going to take, and I had so much peace. And I, and I haven't had a job for eight weeks. I'm wondering why God is testing me. It's like, uh, I don't know if that pigeon was from the Lord. <laughs> See, with Gideon here, it's very clear he was not trying to fit his will into God's plan. He just wanted to know God's will for sure, and I think the Lord honors that. You want to make sure that he's speaking to you. And then I don't think there's anything wrong with asking God for confirmation when you're going to make a big life decision. Because the Bible does give us a lot of general wisdom, but it doesn't always give you specific guidance. For example, it tells you how to be a good worker, but not which specific company to work for. The Bible gives you a lot of wisdom about what kind of person to marry, but it doesn't tell you exactly who to marry. Like there's not, you know, a social security number in the appendix. <laughs> who am I supposed to marry again? Okay, there's a Susie out there somewhere with my name on it. It shows you how to handle money, but not specifically what to spend your money on. So there are going to be times when you're going to have to pray for guidance when it comes to the specifics. Like when I was praying, I was actually praying like, God, should I marry Amy? We weren't even dating yet, but I was praying, should I marry Amy? Because I don't have time to mess around. And I was just like, 
she the one? Is she the one? She's godly. She loves Jesus. She loves Jesus way more than I do, so that's good. Like, I know it's look, like, I like her. So, you know, and then one day, a skywriting airplane appeared and it said, yes, marry Amy. No, that did not happen. But I did start to get a sense of peace. I had, you know, a little bit of angst, and then I felt peace. And I do think that the Holy Spirit in you can communicate with your spirit and give you peace when you're stepping into God's will, knowing that he's leading you to do something that doesn't contradict his word. The Holy Spirit's never going to lead you to contradict his own word. Don't say God told me when you're contradicting the Bible, because God didn't tell you that. The other thing I want to remind you of is, for most of us, we don't always need a sign like we think we do. We don't always need a supernatural sign. A couple a couple of reasons for that. One is we have the Bible. Gideon didn't have this. Gideon had the first five books of the law, the, the Torah, the first five books that Moses wrote. So he had some scripture and there had been prophets throughout the years whose writings had been recorded, but he didn't have the full Bible. Like think about how big of a privilege that is for us. We have the whole picture perspective from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. We know how we got here. We know where we're going. We know what God's going to do. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back, but we know he's going to come back. And so we have hope seeing the whole picture. We know Jesus came and rose from the dead. Like we have, we have knowledge and confirmation that Gideon didn't have. For most Christians, you don't need a new revelation. You need to be obedient to the revelation God already gave you. In Psalm 119, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How many remember the old church song? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 90s church kids, where are you at? The word of God, it gives us guidance and lights our path. It doesn't illuminate the entire course that we're going to take, but it it does show us, hey, here's the next step you can take. If you marry the kind of person the Bible tells you to marry, and you do what the Bible says to do, love one another and forgive one another, you're going to have a great marriage, honestly, regardless of who you marry. I don't think there's one specific person you have to marry, and if you didn't marry that one specific person, your whole life is ruined. You're going to be successful in business if you work hard, the way God tells you to with integrity, regardless of where you work at. For most of us, our level of Bible knowledge already exceeds our level of obedience. We need to just do what the Bible says. And then another thing we have as a benefit, I think one reason we don't always need like a supernatural sign is because we have wise counsel all around us. Wise counsel, you know, you have a church full of older Christians who've been believers for a long time. You have church leaders, you have pastors who you can go to for guidance when you're weighing big decisions. Like, well, what career should I I go into? Who should I marry? Should I buy my house? Should I sell my house? You know, where should I live? What church should I go to? Should I start a new ministry? You can go to wise people and ask for advice. One One of my rules is, Whenever I'm making a big decision, I try to go to at least three people for wise counsel, and I I always make sure at least two of the three are at least two decades older than me. (laughs) So I want a little bit perspective, right? And, And when you're going to someone for wise counsel, don't go to your girlfriend whose life is a hot mess who will tell you whatever you want to do is okay. She's like, just follow your heart. Like, look, look, look where that's gotten her. 
Have you asked for wisdom when you're making big decisions? Have you asked for wisdom? Some people don't ask because they don't want to know. Some people don't ask because of pride. I don't need help. I can do it on my own. Proverbs 15, 22 says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. It's a sign of wisdom to ask for wisdom from wise people. Even when you get older, you still need wise counsel, don't you? And then another thing to consider when you're trying to figure out God's will for your life, you don't always need a supernatural sign for every single decision because you have a free will. God is sovereign and he's in control of everything that happens, but he also gives us choice. He gives us the ability to choose. How can both of those things be true at the same time? How can God be sovereign and in control over everything that happens? And how can we have free will at the same time? That's a good question. You should ask God when you get to heaven. <laughs> Why doesn't God give us a PDF download when we get saved? Wouldn't that be nice when you, when you registered as a new Christian, heaven just emails you like, hey, here's your PDF guide for the rest of your life. Tells you where to work and who to marry and what to name your kids and where to live and what church to go to and what to have for lunch after church on November 26th. You're welcome. How many of you think that would be nice? That would be great. That would save me from a lot of drama and pain. You think it sounds nice, but could you really handle that? Could you really handle that if God told you exactly what to do, every single decision? No. No, God, God gives us general guidance in his word, and we can barely handle that. You already get Christians who are like, why is God always telling me what to do? I read this book, and he's always like, stop stealing, and don't commit adultery, and why is God just like the fun police? And it's like, no, he's saving you from sin and from pain and from heartache. You can learn the hard way if you, if you so choose, but I would recommend doing it God's way. You think we could handle getting a, a download that told you exactly what to do? No, see, that, the reason God doesn't do that is, one, because he wants us to choose to do what's right. He doesn't want us to be programmed as robots. He didn't create Adam and Eve in the garden as robots. He gave them a free will because he wanted them to love him back in return. That's how you have a real relationship. And also, God gives us choice because God is adventurous. If you pick up on this, he enjoys risk. He enjoys mystery. He enjoys last-second rescues. And we're made in his image. Where would the adventure be in life if you knew exactly what was going to happen every single day for the rest of your life? Where, where would the risk be? Where would the mystery be if you knew exactly what was going to happen? If God told you exactly what was going to happen before it happened, it wouldn't require any faith from you. And God loves when we have faith in him, even when we don't understand what's happening around us. Here's the reality. Here's one reason that God doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen in our lives, because we couldn't handle it. We don't have the faith yet for some of the challenges we're going to face years down the road. God, in his mercy and his kindness, gives us just as much as we're ready for as we're ready for it, knowing that as we grow and we go through trials, those trials produce perseverance in us, as James talks about, which enables us to be used in greater ways in the future. See, the reason that God doesn't give you guidance 
for every single decision that you have to make is because in many ways, God's will for your life is whatever. God, God, what should I do? Whatever. Here's where where I'm getting this from. See, in Colossians 3.23, it says, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. God, what should I do? How, how should I do it? Where, where should I go? Who should I marry? Where should I work? Whatever. <laughs> he gave you a free will. He gave you desires. He gave you giftings. He gave you his word. He gave you the Holy Spirit to lead you. At some point, you got to make a decision knowing that, hey, whatever I do, whatever I do, whatever I do, I'm going to do it as unto the Lord and not for men. I'm going to work in a way that honors God. I'm going to serve in a way that honors God. I'm going to make decisions in a way that puts God first. His will is whatever. Just do it for his glory. Going into the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Early in the morning, Jerobel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. Come again, Lord. I thought you just said I had too many men. No, that's what he said. You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. Look at that. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. Or Israel, that's his people, Israel would boast against me, saying my own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. I love this. So at first, Jerobel, that's, remember, uh, Gideon's new name. After he chopped down the Asherah pole and tore down the altar to Baal, they renamed him Jerobel, which means let Baal defend himself, which is suiting because... He's about to go out fitting because he's about to go out and uh, battle against Baal worshipers. And you're going to see that Baal worshipers nor Baal can defend themselves against the one true God, even when they have overwhelming odds in their favor. God is greater. It highlights the fact that there is no equivalence between Jesus and the devil We've seen a lot of movies where good versus evil is the theme. And if you get your understanding of good versus evil from the Lord of the Rings or from Star Wars, you'll be tempted to see the good guys as the underdog. Some of you are, if you, if you really think about it, some of you think of Jesus as like this underdog who overcame, like Rocky. And that's not at all how it is. Jesus versus the devil? That is not Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. That is like you versus an ant crawling on the ground. The ant only lives because you have not stomped on it yet. Jesus and the devil aren't in like some epic battle where Jesus is going to win at the last moment. Jesus is God. He spoke the world into... Jesus created Lucifer, who became the devil. He could stomp him out in a moment. When he chooses to do so, he will. He's going to send him to the lake of fire for all eternity. But for now, the Lord allows the devil to deceive for a time 
according to his purpose. So just get, get clear in your head that even though the people of Israel are outnumbered by a vastly superior force, it's not what it looks like. See, a lot of the times we get focused on, on overwhelming odds against us, and we see it, we see what's before us, we see the enemy through natural eyes rather than supernatural faith. And we're often tempted to think, it's hopeless, the odds are stacked against me, I'm outnumbered, I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't have enough money in my bank account, I don't know what to do, God help me, I'm doomed. And God says to us, I'm with you. You might look like you're outnumbered, but you don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. See, God likes when the odds are stacked against us. God likes when the overwhelming circumstances seem too great for us because that's when he gets the greatest amount of glory. In fact, the, the, the worse your situation looks, the more likely God is to show up and do a miracle in your life. He's attracted to those situations. He likes the last second rescue. He likes delivering you from the enemy in the last moment. It gives him glory. He's like, man, I can't, I can't let you go into battle with 32,000 men, Gideon, because even though you're outnumbered 10 to 1, if you win this battle, you know, 10 to 1 odds against you, it, it's, still, it's still too much for your, your dudes to handle. They'll go home with their chest puffed out like, we beat the enemy. They outnumbered us 10 to 1. We, we did this. I'm going to tell my wife I'm such a stud. Wait till she hears about this. We're going to be like the band of brothers who defeated the Midian it's going to be sick. People are going to sing songs about us. They're going to tell stories about us. And God's like, no, I cannot work with this. I cannot work with this. And so he says, anyone who's scared, send them home. Now, remember, God had been very patient with their, their struggling with fear. He told Gideon, don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. When he was hiding in a wine press, Gideon was still afraid when he tore down the altar of Baal. Gideon was still afraid, asking for a sign to confirm God's will. See, God is very patient with us when we struggle with fear. But there comes a point where you just have to get over it. You just have to get over it. I know that's not politically correct to tell people in 2023 that they need to get over a negative feeling. I know that doesn't sound very tenderhearted, but that's exactly what God says to us. Fear not, for I am with you. In other words, Stop being afraid. That's what he's saying to us. There's this point here where Gideon's going to send 20, 22,000 people home who are still trembling with fear. And I think it's helpful to understand the different types of things we struggle with. Let me talk about this real quick. Worry versus stress versus anxiety versus fear. We often interchange these words, but they really mean different things, and I think it's helpful to understand the difference. Worry, what is worry? Worry is when you have repetitive negative thoughts going through your head. This is when there's a soundtrack in your brain that keeps playing, what if? What if I lose my job? What if I get cancer? What if the politician that I voted for doesn't get elected? What if my kids don't turn out okay? It's just like fear-based Negative thinking that can rob you of peace and joy. What if, what if, what if? So what do we do? Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think 
about these things. So when you have a negative thought that pops into your head, you don't want to try to just, you know, ignore it or remove it, but rather you want to replace it. You want to do like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, replace it with this kind of thinking, that which is pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. Like it's, it's not just, man, like stop thinking negative, stop thinking negative. It's like, no, start thinking positive. What is true? God loves me. God has forgiven me. God has adopted me. God is using me. God has given me gifts. God has given me a future. God has given me a purpose. God has given me eternal life. There's so much true that is excellent and worthy of praise and pure for you to think about. You just pick it, right? You can just walk outside like, man, it's beautiful outside. It's sunny outside. I live in Arizona in the winter. This is awesome. I have a roof over my head. I have food to eat. There's so much to be thankful for. My church is excellent. I got to replace negative thoughts with positive thoughts. That's not like self-help. That's biblical. That's biblical right there. And then second, stress. Stress is the body's reaction to a threat. This is not as much about how you feel emotionally, but your body reacting physiologically to stress. Stress is a real thing. Like some situations are stressful. And, And honestly, sometimes you go through life and you have a season where you deal with a lot of stressful things. And you could be emotionally strong, you could be spiritually mature, uh, and you could be very capable, but stress can eventually start to affect your body, whether you like it or not, no matter how, how good of a Christian you are. I remember when I first became a young pastor, and I was just dealing with some of the stressful dynamics of church leadership. And I remember sitting in a meeting and up in our conference room, and my body was like wigging out on me. And the situation wasn't that intense. It wasn't that heavy. Emotionally, I felt normal. I wasn't like fearful or sad or scared. And in my mind, I was thinking, this isn't really a big deal. I've been in way more stressful situations than this. But my heart started beating fast. And like my eye was twitching. And I was like, what is going on with me? And so I went to a doctor at the VA. And I was like, yeah, my body is like freaking out on me. I don't know. It's probably a tumor. It's a tumor. She's like, it's not a tumor. No, she said like, you've been through a lot these last few years. And there's a certain point where stress builds up cumulatively in your body. And your body just kind of taps out. Says like, we're done. (laughs) And so honestly, she gave me some medication to help me with stress. And I think it helped a little bit. Not, not a lot of pastors would tell you they've taken medication for stress. But I don't honestly, I don't care. So I don't, I don't know, I'm not proud. I'll take a little help if I need it. Honest, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there are other things you can do beside medication that could actually help you even more. Like meditation. People will ask me, Pastor Ryan, is it okay for Christians to meditate? And, I, and I'll always say, yes, if you do it the right way. So what you want to make sure is when you think about meditation, you don't do what Eastern religion promotes. You know, you see like the guy who's like, oh, oh, that kind of thing. Eastern religion, when they talk about meditation, it's always about clearing your mind, getting all thoughts out of your mind, emptying your mind, You know what happens? When you empty your mind, 
You're just there as an empty vessel ready to receive the devil's lies. Have you, have you ever tried to empty your mind? How did that go? You probably, it was probably a really uh, boring five seconds before you started thinking about what you have to do. So the Bible, the way the Bible, the Bible recommends meditation, but a specific type of meditation. It says, don't empty your mind, tells us to fill our mind, tells us to fill our mind, meditate on that, the word of God, what is true, right? Meditation is biblical as long as you're meditating on God's word. It's not empty your mind, it's fill your mind. It's not take out any negative thoughts, but replace them with the word of God. And so for me, like one of the passages I like to meditate on is Psalm 23. If I feel anxious, if I feel stressed, I'll just repeat that passage, you know, the whole chapter, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. (sighs) Right? And that whole chapter is amazing. Like I'd recommend just memorizing it, and you can repeat it to yourself. And I mean, just think about like the image that paints in your mind, right? Laying down in green pastures, laying beside still waters, like a calm meadow, right? And, and the good shepherd, Jesus, is there watching over you so you don't have to be afraid. He's in control. He's with you. He, he, it's not just a peaceful moment, but it's about the king, Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, who's always with us. And, and he does something in us that it restores us. It restores peace to us. It restores our soul. That's something that I need. So don't beat yourself up if your body is reacting to stress. Make sure you're getting enough sleep and eating healthy. But even more so, when, man, when you are stressed out, turn to the one who can help you, the Prince of Peace, Jesus. So stress is a real thing. Then there's anxiety. Anxiety is the radar that reacts to potential threats. This is more of an emotional negative feeling, a mood that you can get into based on dread of what might happen in the future. What might happen? What if this happens? What if that happens? And now, now it's not just a thought, but it's, it's causing you to feel anxious. Have you ever felt anxious about what might happen? Well, Philippians 4, 6, it says this, do not be anxious about anything. But what about, I just saw in the news, I just, I'm dealing with, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, that's asking, with thanksgiving, it's a great time to talk about thanksgiving, right? Let your request be made known to God. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. So I love that this passage, the, the, the linchpin, the key, I think, is Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. You're tempted to worry about what might happen, and that feeling of anxiety comes upon you. You bring that that feeling to the Lord. You pray about it, uh, and you ask God for help, but you do that with a a grateful heart. You, You pray with thanksgiving. It's not just, Lord, I'm worried about what might happen. I'm worried about what happened. I'm worried about what might happen. It's, no, God, thank you for what you've done. It's, it's reminding yourself what has happened. As you bring your needs to God, you thank him for all the things he's done for you, which reminds your spirit that he's in control and that there's no problem that you're going to face that he can't see you through, right? Man, Jesus, thank you that you defeated death. Thank you that you give me eternal life. Thank you that you've given me a family that loves me and a church that supports me. I'm kind of worried about this situation that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about right now, but I'm bringing this need to you. and I'm thanking you for all the good things that you've done. And like that guards your heart and mind and gives you peace. 
And then there's fear. Fear is the radar that reacts to real threats. Fear is your emotional and physiological response to something bad that is actually happening or something scary or threatening that is actually happening. And if you've been afraid, right, maybe you got in a car accident or you got in a fight or or there was some scary thing happening around you, right? What happens? Physiologically, your body starts to react. Adrenaline gets dumped into your body. Right? Your heart rate picks up. Blood starts flowing to your major muscles and away from your extremities, which causes you to lose fine motor skills. A lot of times your vision narrows. Your brain has a hard time thinking critically. And God wires you that way. God wired you to get ready for a, a fight or flight response. That might save your life. You get that superhuman mom strength. Just lift the car off your child. It's helpful, it's helpful in a lot of ways. And so it's not automatically a sin to be afraid. It's not a sin to have fear when you're facing a dangerous situation. It's human to wrestle with doubt and struggle with fear. But again, at some point, you're gonna have to get over it and trust the Lord. Because if you don't, eventually fear will prevent you from living out God's purpose for your life. That's why I think that God sent those who were afraid home. He said, I want people who will trust me. I don't want fear to spread. We talked about last week how fear is contagious, but so is faith. This is why I would encourage you, don't spend too much time watching the news. Because they know fear sells, fear gets people's attention, fear keeps people watching through a commercial break. They don't spend a lot of time talking about nice things. Good news. So you got to be careful, right? You got to be careful who you're around. Fearful people, it can, it can spread, it can be contagious. And God tells Gideon, the people that are still afraid, the people who are trembling with fear, send them home. Could you imagine being one of those guys who went home and for the rest of your life, people find out you were a soldier? Oh, when did, when, when did you serve? Did you fight? With Gideon against the Midianites? And you have to be like, well, no, I got sent home because I was scared. And they'd be like, oh. How disappointing, right, would that be to know the rest of your life you missed out on this mighty miracle of God because you couldn't get over fear, right? It's it's one thing to, to struggle with fear, but fear does not excuse you from doing what's right. Fear does not give you a reason to not trust in God. I don't know about you, but I want to be around people who believe the Lord. And I'm grateful to be in a church that believes the word of God and all the promises of God and that they're true and trustworthy. In verse 4, it says, the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. I mean, God is not letting up here. Uh, Take them down to the water and I'll thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, you shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like a dog. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. 
So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the other. I mean, this is hilarious. God says there's still too many. 10,000? Way too many. No, I, can't, I don't like this. I'm going to thin them out some more for you. And he sends them down to drink, right? And, and so here's, here's kind of what's happening. Some of the guys at the water, you know, they, they kind of cup the water in their hands, and they drink from their hands like this. And then some of the guys... I guess they were real thirsty. They just get down on all fours. This is how I ate my Thanksgiving dinner, by the way. Just. And God said, I want the ones who drink from their hands. Just. And really, what I think what God is getting at here is, is kind of the same principle that was taught to me when I was in the military was this idea of keeping your head on a swivel. That even when you're not in combat, you're, you're constantly scanning your surroundings. You're, you're, not at, you're not at war fighting in that moment, but you're, you're aware in that moment. You're just like looking for potential threats. You're just scanning your surroundings. You're being aware of what's around you. Even though you're not engaged in combat, you're just constantly. And so I think that's what those guys were doing. You know, they're, they're drinking from their hands and they're keeping situational awareness because they knew, you know, the enemy's not far away. So I'm not just going to stick my face in the water like a puppy dog. I'm I'm staying aware of what's, what's happening around me. And God said, okay, I want those people. And I think it teaches us that God wants us to be at peace but always alert. We live in a world where there's car accidents and, and shootings and terrorist attacks and drag queen story hour and political turmoil. And God's saying, like, I don't want you to worry. I want you to be at peace but always alert. And you see this in 1 Peter 5. Look at this. It says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. This cracks me up right here. It says, hey, give all your worries and cares to God. It's going to be okay. Stay alert. Watch out for the devil. But don't worry. Give those cares to God. But watch out because he's roaring like a roaring lion, looking who he can devour. But be at peace, because God's in control. I think you can actually do both things at the same time. You can be at peace, but also alert. And we have to stay alert. As a Christian, we have to live our lives in the peace of God, knowing that he's in control and it's going to be okay. But at the same time, we don't want to become complacent or careless, even though that that, that feels kind of like a contradiction. You have to stay alert. And the reason you have to stay alert is because the things that you're most likely to be afraid about are not the biggest dangers to you. The greatest threat to you is not being featured on the evening news. It's the deceptions of the devil. The deceptions of the devil, which are actually being celebrated by society. And the enemy might deceive you by whispering lies to you. He might say, God doesn't really love you. God hasn't forgiven you. That pastor said God forgives you, but he, he couldn't forgive you. God hasn't really saved you. You're not going to heaven. God can't use you. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Who do you think you are? You can't trust him. You don't really need to be a part of a church. You don't need fellowship. The devil will say, a little sin won't hurt you. You deserve this. So God tells us to stay alert. The devil is prowling. He's a schemer. And he has been scheming humans against humans for thousands of years. So we got to be honest, he's good at it. 
We've got to acknowledge th- this, this reality. He's good at it. He's been doing it for generations. He knows what works and what doesn't. He probably honestly understands you better than you understand yourself. So he knows how to deceive. And one of the devil's most effective strategies is whispering half-truths. The outright lies are easier to spot and detect and reject. Like if I told you guys, the Cardinals are gonna win the Super Bowl this year. (laughs) You'd be like, liar. This guy can't be trusted. But half-truths sound almost right because they're half true. It's easier to sneak half-truths into your thinking. And today, in in our culture, the devil is using the Trojan horse of compassion to deceive Christians. And he's sneaking half-truths into, his church, into the, the, the church of Jesus Christ. And Christians are receiving deception because these half-truths are cloaked in compassion. Compassion. And, and so here's a little bit about what's happening. The world we live in today, the greatest virtue is empathy. Empathy. Just, you know, you should empathize with people. You should feel what victims feel. You should just affirm anyone who says they've been oppressed or hurt. You should not ask questions. You should not talk about objective truth. That's not empathetic. You should just celebrate victims and believe whatever they say and do whatever they want. Now, now in the Bible, you see sympathy. Jesus had compassion on the crowds, and the word compassion and sympathy are the same word in Scripture. Compassion is biblical. Compassion is good. It's when you look at someone who is hurting or struggling and you actually feel for them. You feel sad that they're going through that and you care about what they're dealing with. That's a good thing. So so what does the devil do? He uses your good inclination for compassion to get people to accept deception. Especially in a world today where victimhood is celebrated and victims are elevated, Christians are more prone to accepting this label, like, I'm a victim, I want to be a victim too. People are racing to the bottom to see who can be the biggest victim. And it causes us to think incorrectly and unbiblically about the issues that we're dealing with today. A lot of Christians have a hard time thinking objectively about the issue of prejudice or race because they want to be compassionate towards those who have experienced prejudice. We have Christians buying into the idea that it's not compassionate to investigate claims of abuse. They'll say, you know, we should just believe all women. Now, there are some people who do get abused, but you can't just believe all women. You know why? Because women lie too. Men lie and women lie. Some men are crazy. Some women are crazy. In Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife was the victim in her story but Joseph was the victim in reality. So investigating a claim of abuse is not victim blaming, victim shaming. It's actually justice. It's required for justice. Compassion leads a lot of Christians to compromise on the issue of abortion. And they think, okay, yeah, I know it's it's wrong technically, but then they they fall for these half-truths and deceptions and it pulls on their heartstrings. But what about when a woman's raped? And obviously we feel bad for a woman who's been raped. It's one of the greatest injustices that could happen. And so that will cause some Christians to to compromise and go, well, maybe that's okay. And I I always remind people, hey, the sins of the father don't justify 
committing sins against this child. Two wrongs don't make a right, right? Being raped is traumatizing, but killing the baby adds trauma on top of trauma. The desire to be compassionate causes Christians to compromise on sexual sin. You hear like, hey, marriage is for a man and a woman. Sex exists inside of marriage. And the LGBTQ alphabet? No. (laughs) And then you meet someone who's living that lifestyle. And you go, but they're so nice. And they said they're born that way. And is it really that bad if they're consenting adults? And is it my place to judge? And, and you just become squishy and soft and deceived. And it's coming out of a desire to be compassionate. But get this, you're not more compassionate than Jesus. We're not more compassionate than the Lord. We should stand on his truth and not apologize for anything that he says. We show people love and truth at the same time, knowing that truth is what sets people free. You've got to be on guard against your enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a lion because a half-truth is enough to lead you away from the truth. And the truth is the only one who saves. The Lord had Gideon send all those who were not alert home. If you're not alert to the enemy's schemes, you might end up falling for them and missing out on victory in your life. In verse 8, it goes on to say this, now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord God said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. And then God says this, if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah with his servant went down to the outpost of the camp, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sands of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force, the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Okay, so I know sometimes you have crazy dreams, but not every dream means something. Let me just remind you that. Sometimes you wake up in the morning, you're like, man, I had the craziest dream. What does it mean? Maybe you send the pastor an email, pastor, what does this dream mean? And I'll be like, it means you ate too much turkey (laughs) last night. You had a big burrito right before bedtime, you know, and you... Not every dream means something. Not every dream comes from the Lord. But sometimes God does speak to people through dreams. He does, he does it, we see it in scriptures. Right now I'm hearing a lot of accounts in the Middle East from our missionaries that, that more than ever in recent history, Muslims are having Jesus appear to them in dreams and call them to follow him. And there are people who are choosing to leave Islam and follow Jesus because they actually were encountered by the Lord. And so God can work through dreams. And this instance here with Gideon, the Lord gave the enemy a dream. The Lord gave one of the the bad guys a dream. And he said, he's describing it. I saw a a barley loaf of bread roll down the hill. And barley loaf, that was a a, a type of bread that poor people would have eaten. That wasn't like the good French bread you get. It's all soft and delectable. That was like rough. That was not good bread. That was cheap bread. And so it, it represented the Israelites, <laughs> God's people, 
right? It roll, and then it rolls into the camp, knocks over the tent. And the tent was symbolic of the Bedouin people, the Midianites. They were a transient people that lived in tents. The guy's like, man, I had this crazy dream. And his friends interprets the dream. So the enemy has the dream, and another one of the enemy interprets the dream, and they're both being used by God for God's glory. And Gideon's there, like, outside the camp in the bushes listening, and he hears the, the enemy interpret this dream. Oh, that dream, that, that must mean that God's about to use Gideon to smoke us. And Gideon's listening like, <laughs> I mean, this is incredible. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if, if we got to listen in to the devil's boardroom and hear them talking about us? If God let us just like listen in to the enemy's camp, just talking in there like, man, those, those people, they're raising good kids. They've been trying to deceive their kids and nothing will work. They just know too much scripture. You're all worried about your kids and the devil's talking about how he can't reach your kids. What if we got to listen in like, man, we've been trying to destroy Phoenix there, but that generation church just keeps reaching people. It keeps just thwarting our plans. The devil's, you know, the devil's in there. We might as well just go back to California. If we got to listen in like that, how much would faith rise up in us? We'd be like, you guys. But, but you know what's even better than hearing the enemy talk about you is hearing the Lord talk about you. And the Lord has declared our victory, that the battle's already won. Let's read about Gideon's victory. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. Worship is the appropriate response to victory. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. I would have been like, where's my sword? <laughs> like, watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When, when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon, which I think is a little cocky that he threw his own name in there. Like, won't you guys just shout my name? <laughs> like, okay, bro. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So they had like a lit torch. Here's, what, here's what's happening. They got a trumpet and they have a lit torch that's kind of covered by a jar. And at the same time, they smash the jar, revealing the light of the torch and blow the trumpet and shout. So imagine you're the Midianites, you're in your camp, it's nighttime, all of a sudden around you, torches appear, a bunch of horns, and dudes start shouting, for the Lord and for Gideon, right? That's, that's basically what's happening here. It's like the original shock and awe campaign. And the Israelites, they didn't really have probably great weaponry or the numbers. They didn't have great armor, but they didn't need the best weapons because the Lord did the fighting for them in the most epic way. It goes on to say, verse 21, while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. 
When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled far away. So the soldiers blow the trumpet and cry out, a a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. God snaps his fingers and the bad guys start killing each other. I would have been there like, where's my sword? I, I want a machine gun. I just got this torch and a trumpet. And God's like, you don't need one. You got me. The Lord, the Lord does the impossible and uses the enemy to destroy the enemy. And now, this wasn't even just a one-time thing. It's one thing when something crazy happens in the Bible. It's another thing when it happens again. When it happens more than once, it teaches us that there's a lesson to be learned. There's a principle. It wasn't just describing a one-time event. It was prescribing a certain type of behavior for God's people. In 2 Chronicles 20, the same type of thing happens. An enemy comes against God's people and says this. We're reading about how an enemy army invaded Israel with superior numbers, and the men of Judah go out into battle, and they send the worship team out front, which is tactically questionable. <laughs> they go out front, and they start the battle by singing, give thanks to the Lord, his love endures and forever. And so here's what it says. At the very moment they began to sing and give praise the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. After they had destroyed the army of Mount Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. That's crazy. The king in Israel, Jehoshaphat, and the good guys from Judah, right, they go out to you know, fight this battle, and according to what the Lord told them to do, the worship team starts praising God out in front of the army, give thanks to the Lord, his love endures forever, right? And the enemy just starts killing each other. And the good guys get there at the lookout point, and they're like, well, let's go get their stuff. That's what they did. They're just like... <laughs> They just walked out and like took all their stuff. Yoink, yoink, I'll take that. Plunders of war. Thank you, Lord. They actually named that valley the Valley of Barakah, which means praise or blessing. Because all they did there was praise the Lord and they got a lot of blessing. When people begin to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, the way God says, the Lord supernaturally confuses the enemy. I like there's a gospel song that says, praise will confuse the enemy. God used the enemy to destroy the enemy. And and this is one reason why I think in our church we have very powerful worship services. Because we understand that when we have time of praise and worship and we're singing, you need to know this, maybe you're new to church or you've never been in a church like this. When we're singing to God, we're praising him, we're singing about what he's done, this is not like a Christian concert. It's not Christian kumbaya time. It's actually we're engaging in spiritual warfare. And just like praise confused the enemy in Bible times, I believe that in the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, when we praise the Lord, he supernaturally confuses and scatters the enemy. So you you think about that. When we sing, we're not just praising him for the battles that he's already won. We're not just singing about our future victory that we will win. It's it's actually that when we sing praise to God, he's winning battles in this moment on our behalf. 
Things that we don't even understand. Who knows how, as we're gathered here right now this morning, worshiping him today, who knows what schemes of the enemy are being thwarted by the Lord? It actually commands us to sing in the Bible even when you don't feel like it. Do you know that? When you come to church and you're not in a good mood, the Bible still commands you to worship the Lord. Even when you're like, mm, I don't like this song. doesn't matter. It says in Psalm 134, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. How many of you know that God's blessed us so much, it's great that we have the occasional opportunity to bless him in return? Amen. And rather than just being like, bless me, bless me, bless me, when I worship the Lord, we get to bless him. We get to praise him. It says in Lamentations 3, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Like we see people lifting their hands in church during worship. It's because, one, we're victorious. We can't help but lift up our hands. But two, there's just something spiritually that happens when you lift up your hands to God. It lifts up your heart to the Lord in heaven, pierces the veil between heaven and earth and brings us into God's presence and invites God's presence into our midst. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's something spiritual happening there, Jesus said, when we worship him in a way that's true. It's powerful. We know that enemies are being destroyed. The devil's plans are being thwarted as we worship the Lord. That's why we should, we should always take time to worship the Lord. When you come to church to worship or when you're having Bible reading time at home, right, take time to just worship the Lord and put aside distractions and lean into that moment. Stop thinking about what you have to do for the rest of the day and take time to put your focus on the Lord and, and sing his praise and worship him and watch what God does inside of you. Let me just wrap this up with three quick takeaways First, be reminded that God can use anyone for his glory. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you struggle with. God can use you for his glory. And some of you are tempted to, to believe the enemy's whispers like, well, God couldn't use me. I've done so many terrible things and I'm not educated and I don't, I don't know as much of the Bible as other people. But, but man, God loves to work through broken vessels. God loves to use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And when he does that, it gives him even more glory. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from or what you've done. Don't ask the question, who am I? Ask, if God is for me, who can be against me? The answer is no one. If you're willing, he's able. He's able to use you for greater things. And then this overwhelming odds aren't a problem for God. Don't look at your problems with natural eyes, but rather look at your situation with supernatural faith. Believe that even when 10,000 are against me, there's one who is for me who makes all the difference in the world. The Lord is with me, so I don't have to be afraid. God does not shy away from bad odds. He actually gets excited about them. The worse your situation looks, the more likely God is to show up and do a miracle. And then rem remember this, remind yourself of this, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. We are called to fight, but he is the one who wins the battle. It's not our job to win. We're responsible to fight. He's responsible to win. Our job is to trust in the Lord, and it's God who will win our battles. We don't have to know the answers. We don't have to have the resources, right? We don't have to have, have 
everything buttons up neat and tidy. We just know God is in control and he's with us. And so I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen the way he said it would happen. We're going to be victorious. No matter what comes your way, no matter what you face, you know whose side you're on. You're on the winning side if you stand with Jesus. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of what's said in your word and how you use Gideon, even though he was imperfect and he was flawed, to deliver your people. And as a church, we just want to say, as a group, Lord, use me. We pray that you would use us to rescue our nation and to reach lost people in our own community and to raise our children in a way that honors you. We, we recognize we're weak without you, but we know that when we're weak, you're strong. And when we're, where we see limitations, you see limitless possibilities. God, we thank you for your faithfulness and that you're always with us. You're always in control. And we want today that faith would rise up in us as your people and that we would believe for the impossible and for greater things in the days to come. We know sometimes our, our own faith limits what you want to do in a given situation. So we want to ask for more faith and to believe for greater miracles to happen. Lord, we want to see sickness healed and marriages restored to be healthier than ever. And we want to see prodigal children come home. And we want to see people who are, are feeling so tight financially be provided for, God. We want to see people who are lonely find friendship and belonging. Lord, we know that all these things are possible with you. We thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in the days to come and for even the battles that you're winning on our behalf right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's stand to our feet right now and give God the worship that he deserves. Let's praise the Lord right now and believe for victory.